In preparing for my talk, I read this passage from, the, from multiple translations, ESV, NIV, NASB, the message, but I found the New Living Translation to be the most helpful. So I will begin by reading Romans 7, 1 through 13 in the New Living Translation. Now, dear friends, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only to a person who is still living? Let me illustrate. When a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So then, dear friends, the point is this. The law no longer holds you in its power because you died to its power when you died with Christ on the cross. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, you can produce good fruit, that is, good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died with Christ, and we are no longer captive to its power. Now we can really serve God, not in the old way, by obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way by the Spirit. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is evil? Of course not. The law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin took advantage of this law and aroused all kinds of forbidden desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. I felt fine when I did not understand what the law demanded, but when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner doomed to die. So the good law, which was supposed to show me the way of life, instead gave me the death penalty. Sin took advantage of the law and fooled me. It took the good law and used it to make me guilty of death. But still, the law itself is holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my doom? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commandment for its own evil purposes. When you think about God's law, what comes to mind? Are you drawn back to the Old Testament and the giving of the law to Moses? Do you think about our previous studies of First and Second Samuel and the judgment that the Israelites faced due to their disobedience? Maybe you're thinking, we're in the New Testament now. What does the law have to do with me as a Christian who is under grace? Paul explains what our relationship with the law is in Romans 7. Romans 7 is a continuation of Paul's discussion in chapter 6. Chapter 6 contrasts two types of slavery, slavery to sin and slavery to righteous living. When you die to sin, you are now free to be a slave to righteousness, to live in an upright way that reflects our relationship with our Lord. Chapter 7 contrasts two marriages, one to the law and one to Christ. 
Let's begin by looking at verses 1 to 3, which uses the example of the law as relating to marriage. As long as a husband and wife are alive, they are bound to each other. In Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, Jesus spoke of marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. However, if the husband dies, the marriage bond is broken. The woman is now free to remarry. But if the woman were to pursue another relationship with a different man while his husband, her husband is still alive, she would be committing adultery. The law of marriage only applies when both spouses are alive. At death, the law no longer has a claim on the surviving spouse. In our passage, verses 4 to 6 relates this example to our relationship with Christ. Just as a woman is free to remarry if her husband dies, we are no longer bound by the law because of the death of Christ. We are released from the law and are joined to Christ to live a holy life. In the marriage example, the law binds the woman to her husband, but her husband's death frees her. We are married to the law, bound by its requirements, but by Christ's death, we die with him and become dead to the law just as we are dead to sin. Kent Hughes states it this way, Our marriage to the law is dissolved by our identification with the death of Christ. We are married to him, and the law has no claim on us. Tim Keller describes it this way, You can be either married to the law or married to Christ, but you cannot be unmarried. Paul uses this marriage example to explain our relationship to the law. When we die to the law, we are set free to follow Christ. Again, Tim Keller points out, to be a Christian is to fall in love with Jesus and to enter into a legal yet personal relationship as comprehensive as marriage. In contrast, in verses 7 to 12, we see Paul giving a defense for the law. These verses answer the question, what is the purpose of the law if no one can be made right before God by obeying it? Paul shows that the law reveals sin, condemns the sinner, and increases transgressions. Let's look at these purposes. First, the law reveals sin. Romans 3, 11 to 12, a quote from Psalm, 1, Psalm 14, 1 to 3, reminds us that no one is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The law reveals our sin. However, we are often tempted to think we can do this on our own. We try to keep the law, but we are, we are weighed down by the law's inability to save us. We fear the law and are in bondage to it. Try as we might, we can never measure up to God's standard, no matter how hard we try. Yet, we still try. Jack Miller, founding pastor of New Life Church, referred to himself as a recovering Pharisee. A Pharisee is a religious person who is confident in his own righteousness. By keeping tradition and the law, he takes pride in his position before God. He is a self-righteous person. Jesus tells a parable about the Pharisees. 
in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, is a picture of how boastful a Pharisee can be. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jack Miller spoke of his daily need to recover by God's grace from self-righteous sin. The second purpose ties in with the first. The law condemns the sinner. Paul was convicted of his sinful heart as he saw his own covetousness. Paul, as a Jew and Pharisee, thought he kept the law. However, he was only obeying outwardly. Then he realized that he was sinful regarding the 10th commandment, do not covet, which revealed sin within his heart. The 10th commandment of covetousness is a summary of all the other commandments, revealing that they all involve issues of the heart. In Matthew 5:27 and 28, Jesus taught that the commandment about adultery included the sin of lust. Jesus said, you have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus spoke of the heart issues involving murder. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject, subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. These are examples of how the Ten Commandments are not just outward behavior, but matters of the heart. Paul, through the law, came to understand the extent and seriousness of sin. This leads to our third purpose of the law, which is to see the extent of our sinful nature. Our nature is to be drawn to sin. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, states, God's law arouses sin by stimulating rebellion. The law activates sin, and sin springs to life. When told not to do something, we desire to do it even more. John Stott states, Sin twists the function of the law from revealing, exposing, and condemning sin into encouraging and even provoking it. Kent Hughes shared this example from Augustine, who wrote in his book, Confessions. There was a pear tree near our vineyard, laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took out a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. 
The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden with a dim similitude of omnipotence? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. I am reminded of my children when they were young, when told not to run ahead while walking along the street, they would give me that devilish look and proceed to run off. I see this evident even in my grandchildren. One sibling is playing with a particular toy and the other sibling suddenly wants that toy and grabs it from his brother. That sinful desire to have that toy leads him to take it for himself. And yet, I see this sinful desire evident in me. Some people, when going through a rough time, either avoid eating or tend to eat more. When I'm going through a difficult situation, my tendency is to eat. When my daughter Ruth died, I tried to find comfort in food. During COVID, the temptation to eat was hard to resist. All that time at home and in my boredom, I raided the kitchen. Now I'm trying to lose weight. Yet I struggle with wanting to sneak a snack or dessert because I'm feeling hungry. That craving is very strong. I need to recognize that my struggle with eating is a sin issue. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Our struggles with sinful desires is a real battle. Next week, Sarah Gamage will elaborate more on this struggle as she continues with chapter 7. Let's look back to Romans 6, verse 15, which raised a question. Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Similarly, chapter 7 asks the question, Does the gospel leave you free to live any way you choose? Paul says no. Verse 12 of Romans 7 states, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This deals with the problem of rejecting the law and turning liberty into license. I can do anything I want because I am no longer under the law. So how does the law apply to believers? As John Stott asks, what is the place of the law in Christian discipleship now that Christ has come and introduced the new era? When it comes to our standing before God, we are justified by grace through faith alone and not by the law. Being made right with God, we are under grace. Likewise, in sanctification, we're not under law, but are led by the Holy Spirit. However, the moral law remains a revelation of God's will, which he still expects his people to obey by living lives of righteousness and love. Referring back to verse 6, Paul says, Now we can really serve God, not in the old way, by obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way, by the Spirit. The writer in Hebrews, in chapter 8, verses 8 to 10, quotes from Jeremiah 31, which spoke of this new way with God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The law cannot change a person's heart. Only the spirit can. We are free from the law as it relates to justification and sanctification. The law cannot condemn us. Yet we're free to fulfill the law through the power of the spirit. Our hearts are changed. We come to love the law. King David said in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Paul says in Romans 13, 8 to 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The Apostle John, in his first letter, wrote in chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Douglas Moo puts it this way, We are set free from the law to serve through the power of the Holy Spirit and to bear good fruit to God. What is that fruit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. In summary, we're no longer married to the law because we are married to Christ through his death and resurrection. The law can no longer condemn us because we die to the law when we died with Christ. Now that we are joined to Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us obey God's law and bear fruit for him. We will still struggle with sinful desires, but we are no longer condemned. By God's grace, we can ask for forgiveness and have the strength to resist the temptations we face daily. I will end with the lyrics of a song by Buddy Green called Recovering Pharisee. I'm a recovering, I'm a Pharisee in recovery. With new eyes, I can see the big sinner in me, but it's the way of my human heart to confess other people's sins, reluctant to admit my part or the deeper problem within. But thank God he won't let me be or remain in my hypocrisy. Sooner or later, I'll be on my knees, honest to God, a recovering Pharisee. I'm a sinner and saint simultaneously. I'm not what I was or am going to be. Still, I've got that old tendency to be all a wicked man can be. It takes more than knowing right from wrong. It takes more than singing gospel songs. It takes the life of the great I am to produce any good in me. He's the vine and I'm the branch. And I'm learning to be honest to God, a recovering Pharisee. I need the God of all grace each and every day. If I'm to run his race, if I'm to walk in his way, I don't have to be a slave to sin. I don't have to let the devil win because the son of God lives in me and he promises to set me free. So Jesus, help my unbelief so I can follow you faithfully. You're the shepherd, I'm the sheep, and you're helping me be honest to God, a recovering Pharisee.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your saving grace that we no longer have to strive to meet your standards, which we can never do. Thank you that Jesus was perfectly obedient so that we are no longer bound to the law, but free to obey it through the power of your spirit. Help us to be faithful to you each day. And in the words of Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, I pray that the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good that we may do your will, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.